by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Welcome to Now Playing's Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio Retrospective Series. You swore this was a battle between warriors, so warriors is what I brought. With the February 19th release of Scorsese's latest film, Shutter Island, we here at Now Playing will be looking at the latest chapter in Scorsese's career by reviewing his four most recent films, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, and Shutter Island, all of which star Leonardo DiCaprio. Are you with us or not? These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Four deep thinkers. And today we are talking about Gangs of New York, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Daniel Day-Lewis, Cameron Diaz, Liam Neeson, and Jim Broadbent. And directed by... As all of these in the series will be, Martin Scorsese. This is your host, Stuart. I'm in L.A. And with me today... This is Jacob, also from L.A. Oh, turf war, turf war. And this is Arnie. San Dimas High! Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, not, not what we're doing today. So, folks, this is my show. This was my idea. I was looking to try and do something that wasn't sequel-based. I'm now playing, as you know, we do a lot of franchises. We cover a lot of long, serial-chaptered movies. And frankly, it's hard to find franchises that don't peter out and die a horrible death after two or three installments. So I was kind of itching to do a series that covered a director's catalog, or at least a portion of it. And when Arnie and I were sitting down to look at the movies that were coming out in the next couple months, I got very excited because I saw Shutter Island. I'm like, oh my god, that's new Scorsese. We have to do Scorsese. And Arnie, you were kind of like... Uh, why? <laughs> Hasn't Scorsese had enough ink spilled over him at this point? Is there anything we can add to this conversation? And most importantly, what fun is it? Ooh, well, uh, I will find out. Scorsese, I'm just going to give you a little history uh, about the man, just to catch people up to speed that may not be familiar with his work, but know the name. He was one of the big leading lights of 70s cinema, which would include George Lucas, Star Wars people, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola. He was considered a part of their American cinematic master canon back in the day and racked up quite a good amount of films that many people respect. I don't know you'd call them fun, but some of them are pretty incredible. Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ. I would say peaking with his best film, Goodfellas. Heck, he even made the pilot, <laughs> so to speak, for the Alice TV series. If you remember Flow, Kiss My Grits, he made the movie that they based that sitcom on. But I would say after Goodfellas, he had his biggest commercial success with Cape Fear and then proceeded to just nosedive. Um, he tried new things. He did Age of Innocence, a period film that I wouldn't ask anyone to sit through. He made a movie about Tibetan pacifism called Kundun. You want to talk fun, Arnie? We could do Kundun. He went back to the crime New York thing that he got famous for, and it was stale, casino, bringing out the dead. And the biggest hit to him is he had a falling out with the actor that he put on the map, Robert De Niro. Their partnership where they made a bunch of movies together and really where Scorsese made his fame by 
finding and, and giving De Niro his best parts, that was over too. So it looked by the end of the 90s, by the time we're going to start this retrospective series, like Scorsese was, was where Lucas was, and Lucas was gaining back what he had. Well, as always with Now Playing, we always try to bring three different perspectives. And if it's not painfully obvious by this point, Stuart, you're the Scorsese fan. I, yes. And you've seen all of the movies we're going to be discussing before, with the exception of Shutter Island, which is brand new. I think I've seen every Scorsese movie. Jacob, what about you? What is your history with Scorsese? I, I've seen some of his movies. You know, Taxi Driver, gotta love it. Growing up in the punk scene, it's about a guy with a mohawk going crazy. I gotta love it for that. Also, as a, a comic book fan, I mean, it's a guy uh, becoming a vigilante and shooting pimps. So I'm a big Punisher fan. So Taxi Driver, loved it. Uh, some of his other films I've seen, Temptation of Christ, liked it, was intrigued by it. I've seen Gangs in New York uh, prior to this podcast, uh, The Departed. I won't get into my feelings about those until we, we do those shows. But Bring Out the Dead, oh, just miserable. I, the worst. I can't stand that. The worst film he ever did. <laughs> yeah, and that was probably like the second film of his that I ever saw. And, and so, you know what? I, I've enjoyed some of his stuff. A lot of it I'm more interested in, I, I guess, for more of a just a cinematic aspect, looking at his, his craft and his skill as a director because he seems to do a lot of big epics. So I, I'm interested in him. I haven't been blown away by everything I've seen. As for me, I've got to say I'm kind of lukewarm on Scorsese, especially his modern stuff. When I was a film student, of course, I saw Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. And I can see how in the 70s these movies might have been groundbreaking, but they've since been part of our cultural zeitgeist for so long that by the time I got around to seeing them in the 90s, it was kind of a, a snooze fest. Honestly, when I was studying his work, his favorite movie of mine was After Hours, this little 1985 comedy, which I've recently gone back and rewatched and didn't even find it all that enjoyable anymore. <gasps> oh, no. That's, I love that one, too, actually. Or, I, you know, I, I guess I'm agreeing with old Arnie. I did enjoy that one. <laughs> I would fight you to the death about that not being that funny. Uh, I, but it's your opinion. Please go on. I have to say that I really like Goodfellas when I saw it in the 90s. I haven't seen it since, but my memory of it is very good. I really didn't have too much desire to see Casino. And overall, I'm just kind of lukewarm. And, you know, I'm more of a genre film type of person. Sci-fi, fantasy, action, you know. So these aren't the type of movies that normally appeal to, I guess, my people that I'm representing here. <laughs> I'm, I guess, their ambassador to this podcast. Uh, I, I'm, okay. Well, let me ask you this, Arnie. You do like crime films, right? You do like... I like Heat. Yeah. I like, you know, I like any well-done film, I will say. And there are movies, like, that may not necessarily appeal to me by genre that win me over. But yes, if you're talking about crime films, I like the first Oceans film, Oceans 11. I like Heat. There, there's a number of them out there I like. I love The Usual Suspects and Reservoir Dogs, two of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, and Tarantino is a disciple of Scorsese. I do have a question for you, though, Stuart, because Scorsese, huge name. But I, I think of like a Coen Brothers film or a Wes Anderson film or, or something based off of Charlie Kaufman. There's a definite tone and style to those films, and I can recognize their films right away. When I think Scorsese, I... I don't know. I, I, I can't say what makes a Scorsese film. It, it hmm. seems like he does big stories, but that seems to be his only signature. 
Mm, interesting. Well, uh, you know, Scorsese, I, the triumvirate, as I will recall them, the movies that I think he is most known for are all pretty much about Italian guys from New York dealing with Catholic guilt and being womanizers while they commit violent acts. I think you can pretty much define Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Mean Streets, and Raging Bull, for that matter, more or less fall in that category. And he's also a man that makes the camera move. He loves tracking shots. He has a very distinctive style about setting up a scene, about telling a story. And it's got to be said, too, the language. He's got a filthy mouth. He's got a potty mouth. I can recognize him pretty quickly. And his influence is is big on, on just about anybody that wants to tell a gangster story or a crime film in the last 20 years, it would be hard not to see the influence of Scorsese on their own work. Now, coming in on this first movie, Gangs of New York, I have to say when this came out in 2002, I was somewhat interested in it because I'm a Liam Neeson fan. I think everything he does is gold from Batman to Schindler to Star Wars to Darkman. All right, I did leave out the Justine Bateman film there, but that was intentional. (laughs) For the most part, yeah, Liam's cool. And Daniel Day-Lewis, not my favorite guy. I don't think I'd like to have a drink with him, but I respect his work. Leonardo DiCaprio was a turnoff. You know, Leo's kind of a hard sell to my people. Well, I got a question about Leo, because I I was thinking about on on his career. Where did he get the whole, like, teenage girl appeal thing did that just come from titanic because looking at his his catalog i didn't see a lot of you know those kind of films well there was romeo plus juliet yes yes that was where it really started i mean just to walk you back the guy got his break doing a little movie called this boy's life co-starring Robert De Niro. And that probably was the first time Scorsese paid attention. It was a little movie, but everyone in Hollywood was talking about, wow, this kid's got some talent. And he just sort of amassed a collection of interesting character bits. He got an Oscar nomination for playing Arnie, (laughs) uh, the (laughs) mentally retarded uh, brother of Johnny Depp in uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Arnie, I remember being in the movie theater with you and watching that movie. And when the boy was killing crickets uh, with a mailbox and when they said oh arnie you convulse for probably about 10 minutes i'm like oh, we, so we they- had no clue going in that that was the retarded character's name <laughs> yeah i didn't know what i was gonna have to do after that one but you know and then he did a sam raimi western and then he played a junkie in basketball diaries yeah it's really weird all the all over the map i love that movies aren't great but he's pretty great in them and everyone thought wow this could be the next robert de niro let me tell you he rocked growing pains i remember that (laughs) yeah you know you got to start somewhere but for his movie career he pretty much had no false moves and then there was the double-edged sword of what is known as romeo and juliet and titanic and it did change entirely how people perceived him and he himself how he perceived himself and uh, proceeded in his career. I mean, I think what we're going to see in this series is that he ended up redefining himself as an actor with Scorsese. Scorsese needed him, and he needed Scorsese, because up until that point, he was Leo, the guy that all the, the girls would dream about sailing away on the Titanic with. And I think that really 
did a number on his his whole career. He didn't work for several years. He took a a bit part in a Woody Allen movie where he essentially uh, mocked himself. He beat up a girl and tore up a hotel room. And you know they released a movie that was on the shelf that probably never would have been released called Man in the Iron Mask that should have been. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it should have been dumped straight to video. And they were like, well, it's got Leo, and it's like this is not helping with those those curly hair and all that. I'm like, this is this is just killing the man. Let me tell you, I remember seeing The Phantom Menace in theaters opening night, May 1999, and attached to the film was a trailer for a movie called The Beach, Mm. and the theater just burst out in booze. Mm. You couldn't believe the heckling, and this is in a small Midwestern town. We don't really applaud or boo or laugh or anything. We're, We're a silent, stoic movie audience, but there were people throwing things at the screen. When that trailer came on in 99. Well, there were people throwing things at the screen when the movie came on (laughs) in 2000 because, uh, try as they might, and I've seen the movie and I don't think it's that bad. It's a mess. It's an artistic mess. And it it totally personifies uh, the feeling that, that DiCaprio did not know where to go next with his career. It was kind of an action movie, kind of a drama. It was all over the place. It was kind of a love story. You could really sense that the man has had talent, has talent and has demonstrated it, but needed direction. He did not know what to do, and it didn't look like his career was going to survive being typecast as Leo until Gangs of the New York and until he and Scorsese melded into what has now become a series of four films. Now, let me tell you. Because of Titanic and Man in the Iron Mask, I would have staunchly refused to do this series with you. I would have just said no and somebody else could be in this chair. But for a film called Catch Me If You Can, which I saw in spite of Leo and was, I think, a great film and he was great in it. And I forgot it was him. I forgot who the actor was and got lost in the character. Exactly. And so that has made me give him a second chance here is that he did so well in that movie and i can't think that i've seen him in anything else since but he was so good in that and that was such a good movie i'm like all right let me give it a try here and see if he's as bad as he was in man in the iron mask or because before titanic and things back with what's eating gilbert grape and whatever i thought he was fine and i was excited for romeo plus juliet before i saw it thought he was a great choice for it before i saw it then i saw it and that plus titanic and everything else and i was pretty anti-dicaprio after that but yeah yeah, no, and it, it was easy to be because it just seemed like everything was too easy for him. And, and the, those movies are very sentimental and don't demonstrate his best acting gifts. I mean, I actually like Titanic. I think it's a strong melodrama. I, it, I get choked up when I see it, but I understand it is a Harlequin romance at sea and that you just kind of have to go with it. And it's not a great, great performance. I mean, he, he's great in it in that you want the couple to get together, but he is not demonstrating why he is considered to be the best actor of his generation. He looks like he's, do, he's slumming in a romance movie. And I think with Scorsese, he gets it back. I mean, certainly in this film, he is going against his type completely the other thing i want to say is one of the reasons i didn't see it uh, honestly a stopping point for me to see it was cameron diaz Mm. (laughs) because i saw the trailers and i'm like this looks pretty good yeah it's a period piece and period pieces are kind of a hard sell to me 
but it looks pretty good, and Scorsese's a good name. And then I see Cameron Diaz, and I just think of all of those miscast actresses in period pieces, uh, Uma Thurman, or, you know, some of those actresses who are great in modern-day films, and once you put them in something like this, they become laughably bad. And so I did not see it. I've not seen it until I watched it for this retrospective. Okay, so Leo and Cameron Diaz were the reasons you didn't want to see the movie. And let me let me be clear. I love Cameron Diaz. Charlie's Angels, I'm all over it. Something about uh-huh. Mary. I, I'm a Cameron Diaz fan, but seeing her in a period piece just seemed like a bad choice. Okay, well, we're definitely going to talk about both of their performances and what they add or detract from this movie. I could start with a quick plot summary. Why don't you, since uh, I am guessing a lot of people like myself have not seen this movie. <laughs> Okay. Gangs of New York was Scorsese's pet project. He was, like I said, kind of washed up at the end of the decade, didn't know where he was going to go. And the Weinsteins pulling him aside and said, you know, Marty, I hear you want to attach yourself to this project and that part project, but what do you want to do? And he pulled this out of the drawer. And it is some 1928 obscure nonfiction, nonfiction, not even a story in it, project that he's always dreamed about doing his whole life. So they were like, okay, we can't, <laughs> we can't find the money for this. We can't fund a crime, Western, Civil War, New York romance movie until Leo got attached. And suddenly it was very easy to come up with a $100 million plus budget for this story. Now, what's it about? It's a movie centered in a Manhattan neighborhood known as The Five Points, which is essentially, I think, if you know New York, it's kind of in between Chinatown and Wall Street, the, the financial district. That's where the five points were. And it's a slum where both emancipated slaves and the Irish fleeing the whole potato famine were dumped uh, when they arrived in America. We're going to start in a prologue in 1846 where we're seeing a turf war between the Roman Catholic immigrants, and that's represented by Priest Valen. Liam Neeson, his gang is going up against the natives, the Protestant natives who hate the Irish and who were born in America and see them as trespassers. And this is represented by Bill, nicknamed the Butcher, played by Daniel Day-Lewis. Butcher lost his eye to Priest in an earlier battle. He's ready for a fight. The first scene is a big old throwdown between the gangs ending with Liam Neeson being killed, gutted right in the snow in front of his kid, who runs away 16 years later, comes back as Amsterdam Valen, Leonardo DiCaprio, a scrapper who is ready to get, what else? Avenge for his father's death and kill Bill. So a classic B-movie storyline there. And from that point on, he encounters many characters who were there the day that his father was murdered, including uh, a childhood friend who helped uh, hide his knife, played by Henry Thomas, remember E.T.? <laughs> and he begins to become re-familiarized with how the politics work in the five points. Everything runs through Bill and Boss Tweed, Boss Tweed being a real historical character. And the dead rabbits have been scattered. They're now in corrupt police forces. They're now in the private sector as barbers. They're not allowed to talk about their past history. The Irish essentially sequestered and being shipped off to go fight in the Civil War. And they're pissed. They don't understand why they have to get off the boat and then go directly to fight somebody else's war to free the slaves. Amsterdam's plot, it's a little hazy to follow, but it basically has to do with charming Bill getting his approval 
his trust, uh, stealing for him, becoming his right-hand man, and then taking him out in a ceremony where they commemorate the, the falling, the killing of his father. During that time, he also strikes up a relationship with a pickpocket with a heart of gold, Cameron Diaz, who is also in some kind of romantic affiliation with Bill. So they've introduced a, a, a love triangle, as it were. Amsterdam is betrayed by Henry Thomas because of his relationship with Cameron Diaz and is outed to Bill as being the traitorous son who has come to kill him. And Bill thus thwarts his assassination attempt and kind of disfigures him, kind of. We'll talk about that. But leaves him to be disfigured and uh, reviled in the five points, uh, a lone man. But what, what he was not anticipating was that the Irish are so angry about the way that they're being treated that they're willing to sign up with Amsterdam, uh, reform as a gang, and take on his enormous uh, political machine in a big showdown that happens to coincide with some draft riots. The Bill the Butcher character is killed in a spectacular battle involving cannon fire and circus elephants, and Leo and Cameron Diaz eulogize the dead before slinking off to San Francisco. You know, this is a fictional story involving real people, similar to Titanic, I suppose, where a boat really did go down. The draft riots did occur. There right. were fights in the street. There was a Bill the Butcher, and there was a priest, Valen, and a gang called the Dead Rabbits. Bill the Butcher is kind of fictional. There actually was a Bill the Butcher in that time in New York. His last name wasn't Cutting, but there was a Bill the Butcher. Mm -hmm. I knew the gangs were real. I had no idea that the characters were. I assumed they were all fake. And I just want to put it out there right now. I'm not coming at this as a historical scholar. Uh, I grew up in on the mean streets of Springfield, Illinois, and my history about New York is sketchy. I, I know what I know from walking around Times Square. It's, it's not my strong suit. But I'm, I'm fascinated by the detail work here. So interesting. Yeah, there is some of it there. The Bill the Butcher character is based on uh, William Poole, who was a member of the Bowery Boys, and he was a boxer and leader of a political movement. You can read about it on Wikipedia, but it's, you know, a representation of history without being accurate. Right. Yes, it's it's historical fiction is the genre it's usually uh, categorized in. And I think it's the part that Gorsese really cared about. Like I said, the book that this is based on is nonfiction, and he had been reading and rereading it. And you can tell that he really enjoys the dark sense of humor that comes out of the details of the chaos of that time. I mean, the New York that it's portrayed here is... Total madness. I mean, we have not a unified police force, but essentially gangs of different police forces and firemen who beat up each other when they go to the fire rather than put it out and loot. <laughs> I did love that scene with the firemen, you know, the buildings burning to the ground and the firemen are engaged in a fist fight over who gets to put it out. Yeah, I mean, it's the corruption is just on every level and, and almost everything that's being conveyed and said is about how unhonorable most of these people are. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's quite a vision of dark humor that Scorsese uh, is loving to put up on screen. Another one that I loved was that they're holding boxing matches and people are betting and Bill the Butcher makes a lot of money off of the stuff, but they pay off the wrong police force. The municipal police force didn't get paid off. They shut him down. They have to go put it on the docks. 
and uh, the, the the scene ends with the man uh, just brutalized after seventy five rounds. Like I can't even imagine. This is the mean streets of New York. This is the New York where. The New York we know, the Times Square, Disney-fied, friendly New York City, Big Apple, comes out of. And I think this is Scorsese's way of trying to get in touch with all of the crime, all the violence that he grew up, all of those hoods that he's characterized in, in previous stories. He's finding the root of where that all came out of. All right. Well, let's kind of go through this movie chronologically and start with that big battle at the beginning. Because you're introduced to all these characters, and most of the characters who are going to appear throughout the movie are here in this big battle of the dead rabbits versus the natives. And this is the only time we get to see Liam Neeson, who I think was absolutely great in this movie. And I I was sad when he died. (laughs) Which is, like, really early. I mean, I think he gets slightly more screen time here than he did in Narnia, Arnie. But... (laughs) (laughs) But, well, I didn't know Liam was in this movie when I put it in the DVD player. And I'm like, oh, Liam Neeson. Oh, he's dead. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Don't get too attached. That's pretty much how it went. Yeah, he's here because they need someone as cool as Daniel Day-Lewis to represent the other side. And they're like, who can we get that's Irish that, like, instantly conveys badass? Liam. Gotta be Liam. Hey, he's Hannibal from the A-Team. He is badass. Yeah, yeah. So... We see this huge fight, and ears are being cut off, and limbs are being cut off, and it is not exactly what I expected a period piece, and I was kind of happy by that. No. I, I wanted to step back a little even before that huge fight, because I love the opening buildup. You, you got this small army marching through. I don't know if it's the church or the mission, but moving mm-hmm. up to these levels, more people joining them. You have this great you know, old-timey music with the drum beat. With, with the fife or the flute playing, just this great period music. Building and building and building. You get the guy, you know, the mercenary, you know, I'll fight for you for, you know, $10 a kill. All right, yeah. I'll pay you. Kick the door open. And it's so anticlimactic for me after this huge buildup because there's nothing there. And then they just kind of walk out on the snow and wait. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Yeah, it's I, I thought there was going to be an army waiting outside for him, and, and it was just going to, you know, it was going to be Braveheart. They're going to storm out of that building and just go to war. Well, it kind of was Braveheart because, you know, one thing I never understood about period wars is how you all just line up and wait to slaughter each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you did it at Braveheart. I think they did it in Gettysburg, and they did it here. You just you get everybody up on the line and wait. There's there's no such thing as a tactical advantage in these old time battles. True, true. And there's no such thing as hip hop. But man, once oh, they finally shoot, once they do finally go, they drop some beats, man. It's like boom, 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 boom. I'm like, did, did oh, that take damn. out of it? Totally took me out of it and put me into it at the same time. It, it totally ruined the scene for me. That that music never comes back. All uh-huh. the other music in this film is either again that old timey music or just more orchest- orchestral uh, typical scores uh, for a movie. You never get this hip hop, and I'm like, why do I have this this trip hop electronic music during this epic <laughs> battle? It, it seemed so inappropriate. I would have been okay with it if that would have been a theme. I, I've seen some period piece movies where they've incorporated modern music, and it worked. Mm-hmm. It, but this was the only time that music came up, and, and it just seemed like such a weird selection. Why not keep that theme throughout the film if you're going to try to meld together this old history of New York with the modern New York? But it, that just never seemed to be a theme that came out. 
I don't know why it's here. And I could, you know, this movie, it should be said, ended up being a battle in the editing room, that the Weinsteins definitely wanted one movie and Scorsese wanted another. It's, it's, I'm wondering if this wasn't an opening compromise. The Weinsteins were saying, we're trying to make Gladiator here. We're trying to have a really modern sensibility to these old-time fights, and Scorsese gave them the bone by making the, the opening scene what it is. I don't know, but I liked it. I thought it worked. There was an entire score to this film made and then it was jettisoned at the last minute for another score so mm. it's it's very possible that that's the yeah. case i have to say it's in my notes that i loved that opening fight music because again it wasn't period piece i i really liked it and i started looking for the score after that but i was pulled out of it because of during we're talking about the main battle has now commenced right between liam and daniel day lewis's people absolutely yeah there's this woman who seems to have gotten in the wrong movie. Oh, I love her! I think she was from the Army of Darkness set, and she kind of came over because she's, like, flying through the air doing wire foo <laughs> and has Freddy Krueger claws and, like, sharpened teeth, and she reminds me of the Pit Witch from Army of Darkness, and I'm like, did someone let Sam Raimi here? Total, good call, Arnie. That's exactly what she reminds you of, and I loved that. I loved the mind fuck of coming in and thinking, I know what a period film is going to be. Here's the players. They're going to what? They're going to go at each other like Braveheart. It's going to be a couple axes, a knife, whatever. And then, yeah, this chick comes out with filed down teeth and like uh, you're right what was on her hands i don't know but she gouged somebody good with that hellcat mary is the character's name and i'm willing to bet they didn't make that up i'm willing to bet that she's a real historical character because why would you put that in there if that wasn't true i mean crazy stuff i I can't imagine that that was true but you want to bet let's wager well wait wager we'll look it up and at the end of the show, we'll find out. But she, I thought when they were lining up for the fight, I'm like, is, is that a woman? Is that Helena Bonham Carter? What is up with her? <laughs> <laughs> and then the fight begins. And I'm just like, what movie am I watching? Because this is not what I expect. And I have to say, it, she, she never comes back, really. Out of all the people you see there, she's like, every so often she pops back up. And you're like, oh, is some crazy shit going to happen? No. Okay. And Honestly, I think the film never quite hits the highs of this opening battle again. I think that this was so spectacular and gory, but it's not that I'm like a gore hound, but it was it was crazy. It was insane. It was. And the other thing that's going on I would like to point out is when you think of period films from this era, you think of corsets. You think of reserved clothing, you know, the rich, you know, little suits. Everyone is prim and proper. The, the, the shit that these gangs pull out with, like, these Dr. Seuss top hats and these, ca- you know, like, plaid pants and a, a calico coat with, the, you know, like, color schemes that you would – you would, like, if this were modern day, you would be beat up by the gang because you looked like that. And they – I mean, like, I have never seen anything like this opening battle. And that's what impresses me the hell about this movie. It's like, yeah, I could not have predicted any of this was coming. Hellcat Mary, the top hats, all of it. It's it's wild. It's weird. Now, I also found it interesting when I was doing my research that the Dead Rabbits was a real gang because I'm like, you know, the, the Dead Rabbits was a gang. Now we got like the gangsta disciples. You know, <laughs> the Dead Rabbits doesn't exactly strike fear into the hearts of the masses. 
Oh, but it's a good visual. I mean, they're walking around literally with hairs on sticks, you know, poor guys. And the, and that's their little logo. You know, every time they got to go represent, Bugs Bunny goes down. And they're poor. That's good food for them. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're sacrificing their dinner. That, it's, it's an interesting point because you're exactly right. The uh, immigrants are starving. They're literally starving. They do not have access to food. They'll sign up to fight in the war just to get a free meal. So you know it means something if they're going to take that rabbit and put it on a stick and not in their belly. I don't know if this was what they intended when they started, but what we see here, if nothing else, lets you know you are not going to see a movie uh, like you've seen before involving this period in American history. And we're introduced to a lot of characters there. There was one, the mercenary Jacob was talking about, who I had to pause the movie because I'm like, I, I've seen that actor in something. And what I had seen him in is recently I, I watched Turbulence with Ray Liotta. And- Oof! <laughs> And he was the FBI agent on the airplane. He's probably far better known for being Mad-Eye Mooney in the recent Harry Potter films. Yes, Harry Potter, and he was also in Braveheart. Weren't most of these actors in Braveheart? There's only so (laughs) many Irishmen you can dig up for a film. Well, Well, you know, Scotsman, Irish, you know, they're white. They have funny accents. They come from that region of the world. They got the hair. Yeah, they got the hair for sure. So, yes. And he's an interesting character. His storyline is interesting, I think, because, yeah, he's not exactly affiliated with the group, but he's willing to work with them for money. And he actually, when Liam Neeson goes down, the his son, who will grow up to be Leonardo DiCaprio, witnesses the guy taking money out of his pockets. And so you think, oh, this is a bad guy. He's going to kill him, too. And also, uh, you, you, we're introduced to so many of the players, Daniel Day-Lewis, who we're, we're going to get to, but we're introduced also to a character, Happy Jack, played by John C. Riley. Now, this pulled me way out of the movie, because if you don't know John C. Riley, then you obviously haven't seen Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, or many other Will Ferrell vehicles, such as... Talladega Nights. Tal- yeah, Talladega Nights. Step Brothers. Exactly. This guy, to me, is comic actor. And to see him in this, it's kind of like I recently watched – I don't know why I'm watching so many bad movies, but I recently watched uh, Night Watch with Ewan McGregor, and John C. Riley had a serious role there as a police investigator, and I could never take him seriously. I had the same problem here. I kept waiting for him to be wacky and for Will Ferrell to come out being chased by a dinosaur. Well, you know, he has done some more dramatic things, too, more, tougher. Uh, Boogie Nights, which is obviously a movie influenced by Scorsese. He's the the other porn player with Mark Wahlberg, and he was in Chicago as well, So, Mr. Cellophane. Yeah, he he obviously has done more than comedy. It's just that's where I knew him from, and when I saw him, it just was like sure he didn't fit. I've never imagined if you told me before this movie that I'd see a scene with John C. Riley and Liam Neeson that I would believe you. Well. Here it is. So then we fast forward 16 years, and Leonardo DiCaprio is back from – he's been held captive in like an orphanage for 16 years. Mm, it's a reformatory. I mean it's not exactly captivity, but it's – He claims it is. It's close enough. Yeah, it's like you know, growing up in a juvenile detention home essentially. It's an island where orphan bad kids uh, learn how to be street brawlers. And that's certainly how he comes looking when he, when he rolls off the docks here. This is not the soft Leo from Titanic or Romeo and Juliet. This is definitely a Leo that's been working out, not bathing, and going to Bono for hair product. (laughs) 
he's got some greasy hair in this movie. It's some greasy hair, man. I'm like, that is a mullet that needs washing <laughs> badly. I'm like, if every girl that like wrote in their high school yearbook that they were going to marry Leo isn't like shredding it, they, then I don't know what what the appeal is because he is doing everything in his power in these opening scenes to look like a like a scrapper, like a like a thug that you would not give a second look to. Wait, wait, did you instantly get over your Leo hesitation, Arnie? Yeah, he was okay in this. You know, he was fine. I wouldn't say that he worked perfectly in this film. I didn't instantly get over anything. He has dug himself into a hole that for years and for this entire series, he's going to have to prove himself to me time and time again. Okay. But in this film, I thought he did fine. I, I thought he was pretty good. I don't know if he was the best choice because he could not keep that accent. There were times when it comes and times when it goes. Well, I thought he did pretty good with it. He did better than some with the accent. We're going to get there. But you're right. He is not the perfect choice for this part. If you were looking for someone in this part, you would go with a Russell Crowe. You would go with a tough guy. Leo is not it. But if they wanted to fund this movie, it was going to be a Leo movie. And so Scorsese worked with it. And I think that if nothing else, I didn't look at Leonardo DiCaprio the same way after I saw this movie. I was not thinking about the beach or Romeo and Juliet or any of those romantic leading parts. Yeah, I, I agree with Stuart because when I saw him in this, that, and that's why I asked the question earlier, what got him that you know reputation as a big heartthrob? Because I saw this, I'm like, man, there's nothing to ma- that makes me want to fall in love with him. Mm-mm. No. Uh, no. So, so I, I, was, I guess I was impressed knowing what his reputation was and what I was actually seeing on the screen, what he was portraying. Mm-hmm. And then we see him reunite with Henry Thomas, who had, as a boy, helped try to help him escape. And Henry Thomas starts showing him the ropes of the current Five Points and shows him all the gangs. And all I could think of was this movie called The Warriors. Because he's got all of these gangs and it's like the underwear on the outside of their pants gang and the (laughs) funky hat gang and come out and play. I mean, don't even start with the Warriors with me because that is one of my favorite cult movies. I love that movie to pieces. And maybe that's why I'm so enthralled uh, with with seeing Gangs of New York again was that I, I love gang movies in general. If there's gangs in it, I'm excited. But yes, those crazy gangs where they define themselves by their costuming. I love that. I love that. And you're right. There's this whole montage where you have everything from the transsexual gang to the old guys with uh, overall gang. I mean, it's a, it's a weird brew. And I can only believe that all of it is accurate because I don't think Scorsese, uh, who was obsessed with telling the nonfiction side of the story, would have allowed that to to be inaccurate. Here's the thing. It never comes up again. Never. I kept thinking that, you know, he'd have to work his way through these gangs or all these gangs would fight or band together. Really, this whole thing is about dead rabbits and natives. And the other gangs that we are introduced to at this beginning scene, it's a wonderful montage, but it never paid off. And I will agree with you on this. This will be my first complaint lodged against this movie is that they obviously shoehorned uh, a very pulpy B story about avenging my father's death into this movie, this nonfiction story uh, that was a chronicle of gang life. If I were going to tell a story about 
the New York gangs, I would make it all about the New York gangs. I don't know that you need all of this other stuff. You certainly don't need the romance subplot we're going to talk about in a minute here. And it is a shame that some of these colorful characters we see are just in the background. Yeah, because it seemed like a whole lot of introduction. And, you know, I, I really thought since the movie's called Gangs of New York that it would be, I don't know, about the gangs of New York. There were two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that is gangs, plural. But yes. there were so many more there. And I, j- yes. I just would have liked to have seen something more with them. I totally agree with you on that. It's a real shame. It does pique your interest. And, and, you know, Scorsese tells stories like this. I mean, I think if you go back to Goodfellas and there's a lot of montages where he's walking through casinos and pointing out different mob heads or what have you, throwing out the the real-life details – uh, sometimes it's just about the energy. It creates an energy. We we see all these characters. We see these outfits, particularly the costumes, and we're drawn into this world. We definitely feel invested in it, or at least I do. I really felt like, man, I'm over any kind of period film bias that I have about this is going to be stale and boring. This is a weird, almost Tim Burton-esque world, uh, and I want to know how it works. But it doesn't keep that energy up, and that was my problem. It, it, I, it get, grabbed my interest. I'm like, man, this is cool. You know, I, I always dig a good transsexual gang. Yes. And <laughs> is it Saturday already? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a little tired of it, frankly. But I'll go with it because they're the, they were the first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I, I I like that. You know, more informational stuff, especially going back to a, a story that took so, a place so long ago, where I don't have a big connection. I watch Gangland all the time. Uh, as we talked about, I don't see gangs running around in plaid pants and top hats. Mm-mm. So that interested me. But, man, it this movie just goes on and on and on. And so that, that high point, it just kind of drops from there because you never get another moment like that until towards the end where, where these gangs are coming together again to fight one last time. I, I do have to agree. This movie starts off at its best moment. It's kind of, you know, reversed because it opened really well with the battle. And after that battle, you know, my adrenaline was going. I was pumped. I was excited for this movie. And then, you know, I basically had, I would divide this film into thirds or perhaps quarters because you got the opening and I'm still saying we're in the opening here where it's all set up and you know Leo's back to to get Daniel Day-Lewis, mm-hmm. but you're not sure how or anything. We're never really privy to his plan. Then we come into the second part of the movie, which is, Stuart, you just mentioned Goodfellas. It reminded me a lot of Goodfellas. It's Leonardo joins Daniel Day-Lewis's gang and works his way up the ranks and becomes basically the star of the gang and things. And, right. you, you know, I don't think even the... Amsterdam character knows at some points what he's doing because there's this really over-the-top narration to the movie that I disliked. Oh, yeah. And he goes that when you're under a dragon's wing, you don't know how warm it can be. Okay, I wrote that line down because don't dragons breathe fire? I would figure they're pretty warm. Ice was scratching my head at that line. Absolutely. If I ever see a dragon, I'm going to think that breathing fire probably makes them a little hot to the touch. But yeah, so he's, he's kind of becoming seduced by the power that that he's getting being Daniel Day-Lewis's right-hand man. Now, it's time to talk about Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, yes. Because we've talked about the fashion in this movie, and I'm sorry, but there are so many side characters dressed like we would expect characters to be dressed in a period piece. You know, they're wearing the old-timey clothes and whatnot. But then you got Daniel Day-Lewis with his curled-up mustachio 
Yeah, handlebar mustache. And his top hat. Yes. And I'm, I've got to think, why did they make him look like a carnival barker? Why did they take their main villain and dress him so ridiculously? Now, it is a credit to this movie and that actor that after about 45 minutes into this two-hour and 45-minute film, I stopped sniggering and actually started realizing the character was a badass. But initially, I, I thought that the fashion choices right there undermined him as a villain because really, he looked like he was about to sell me tickets to see the dog-faced boy and the bearded lady i had the opposite reaction because man if i'm gonna go up against someone and they're gonna dress like that dude they gotta be badass <laughs> like I, i'm gonna be scared if someone's walking around and, and they're willing to fight anyone and, and they dress as ridiculous and look as, as ridiculous as bill the butcher i i gotta be a little bit scared i actually the, the first shot of him during that opening battle scene where he's just standing there he looks – it's probably because of the hat and also the cut of his pants. I, I don't often look at the tailoring of clothes, but <laughs> the cut of his pants gave him a very – his legs look very long in this movie, and it's the way – you know. Yeah, he kind of looked like on stilts. Yeah, he's a very – I always thought he was very imposing, and to be able to pull off that look with the, the goofy handlebar mustache, and he's always kind of squinting his eyes. I don't know. And maybe it, it, it's because of Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, acting ability. I totally bought into it. I love this character. And the thing is, I don't know if perhaps it was ultra-realism because the top hats – I mean, you always think of the Monopoly man, and the top hat is the sign of wealth. And maybe in the late 1800s, those who were really wealthy would show it off with a top hat, but I I really just thought that that would have been something maybe to give an affectation to the mayor character, whoever that was, instead of to your lead thug. I hear what you're saying. And again, I want to salute the costumings in this movie because they are so brave and they are accurate. That's what's crazy. This is really how they dress. They really did. And the and the nineteenth century version of Bling was that the bigger the top hat, the cooler and bad more badass you are. I mean It's like, a phallic symbol. It totally is. It <laughs> totally is. And yes, Bill the Butcher is just sporting a look that will never be created again. It just cannot work in any other world. Does that even look badass? And as we, as modern audiences are looking at him, you're right. He does look like a circus performer. It is foolish, but he totally wins you over because the performance is gargantuan. He chews, devours, and spits out the scenery and is having so much fun here. And I, every time he is on the screen, I am loving this movie because Daniel Day-Lewis owns in this part. I got to agree. And he, the accent is as ridiculous as the clothing, too, that he puts on for this. But again, it is – I don't know if it's the script or the actor. It's probably a combination of all of it that it works. However, one thing, no matter how late into the movie we got, kept making me laugh. Every time he removed the hat yes. was this sweaty, greasy, <laughs> matted down hair. Yes. Because every time you think, you think, if he just take off that hat, maybe he'd look badass. No, he looks dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, some, it was some helmet hair for sure. If you ever had to wear like a baseball helmet or whatever and, and then take it off, it was the worst version of that. It was the worst helmet hair I've ever seen. It's great. The guy is such a character. He is so much fun. And then he like takes a knife and taps the eye that priest gouged out. He's got oh, a glass man. eye. And I'm just like, man, does this guy have anything but ticks? You know, he's just, he's just quirky as hell. And he's got like this American eagle on the eye, and it reminded me of the character from Last Action Hero who kept changing his eyeball to fit the mood. Oof. I mean, <laughs> you are pulling out some disastrously bad movies, but all right. <laughs>
Um, and, you know, the thing about Daniel Day-Lewis that's so much fun is that a lot of his dialogue is just so sharp. And it's this cutting remarks about the Irish immigrants. You know, he's just, you know, I don't see uh, Americans. I see trespassers. And he has so many great lines about how he wants to kill the Irish. He sees them as uh, an insurgent, an invasion. And, the, you know, the whole time I'm thinking – Daniel Day-Lewis is an Irish actor, and he's delivering these. You know that was part of the fun, was that he was taking uh, you know, racial epitaphs about his own people and getting to spew them on screen. It's quite, it's quite a funny inversion because, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis is Irish, but in this movie, you totally buy him as this New York uh, acting, born in New York uh, guy, and it's just great. It's just great. He blows Leo off the screen. You know, we're here to talk about uh, how Leo works with Martin Scorsese, but there's no way that DiCaprio can compete. Even though he's bulked up and got the greasy mullet hair and all of that, Leo is not one-fifth of the character that Bill the Butcher is. That's true. The scenes really were on fire when Daniel Day-Lewis was on the screen. And the rest of the movie, especially... The third part of the movie is this romance story. Oh, God. Okay, we can all agree here. I'm going to sense that we may not agree on this movie, but on this chapter, if this were to accept the way you're sectioning the meat here, Arnie, <laughs> uh, this is one that we all agree is fat that needed to be trimmed. This is like an hour that could have been just cut out <laughs> of the film. It had already been trimmed down from a three-and-a-half-hour movie to a two-hour, 45-minute movie. I think we all could see a 2.20 running time, maybe. <laughs> well, I think that they should have put back some of the connective stuff I would want to see, maybe stuff about the other gangs or whatever. There was so much more I cared about. If there was one storyline we didn't need at all anyway know how it was a romance we did not need a romance this is a vengeance story you kill my father i'm going to get you and i'm going to do it by infiltrating all of these gangs we don't care who he's banging you know that's that does not have to be anything other than a scene in a brothel but of course it's leo post titanic so there's no way we're not going to have a scene in which he's recreating the dance scene from titanic and romancing a girl that looks suspiciously like Kate Winslet. Poor Cameron Diaz dolled up in some very fake orange hair and giving a, a, an accent that she must have studied very hard, those Lucky Charms commercials, to achieve. <laughs> now, I, I want to say, coming off of our review of the movie Avatar, where I felt the love story wasn't earned, even though perhaps it went on too long here. I kind of liked the romance between them. It it set up certain things in the plot, such as... What did it set up? Because I was trying to no, figure out what it, the story yeah. added. What did the now, love story add? When Johnny Siroso betrays Amsterdam to yes. Bill the Butcher, there's that. And also, you know, kind of part of the reason that Amsterdam is becoming so comfortable in the dragon's wing is... You know, I, I found their attraction to be very believable. First of all, Cameron Diaz is hot. But second of all, the fact that, you know, Amsterdam is a badass, you think he'd be attracted to an equally bad girl. And this pickpocket who steals his medal and who he has to chase down and find out she's really got balls because she dresses up as a housemaid and does one of the most audacious robberies and all of that. I, I found those two characters to be compatible. And it was a romantic romance that I found believable. Did I need as much of it as there was? Did I need 
to all the back and forth and Amsterdam's angst that Cameron Diaz, whose character's name is Jenny, has slept with Bill the Butcher also and all of that. Did I need that? No. Mm-mm. No, you don't need it. Nobody needs it. And it's it's only there, like I said, to fulfill the female quotient and what they demand from a Leo movie. Um, I'll give you this. And, and I think you're right about something. If you have to insert a love story into this gang vengeance story, they've at least made her a complicated romance figure. They didn't just like have pretty Cameron Diaz looking all modern and then walking around in this world. They do try to make her look as good as they can, but she's got a scar on her belly. She's been through a lot and she's a pickpocket and she's not, she's not a good girl. And, and I thought that was a brave choice to at least if they're going to bang, then they portray her as a loose woman with a, a dead child. Did she have an abortion or did she just have a stillborn child? I was guessing it was a miscarriage. Did they even abort in the 18th? 1800s. Yeah, of course oh, they yeah, did. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's the I, second I, I thought they profession. were getting at an abortion. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't clear, but we definitely know that the woman has is damaged goods, and that is normally not how they portray these stories. Usually she's the savior, the saintly figure who comes in and helps the uh, thuggish character be more pure. And in this one, she's as bad as he is. And we get to see a side of New York and the criminal side of New York that we wouldn't have otherwise through her by seeing the pickpockets, by seeing her dress up as the maid. That was all good detail work. I just didn't buy Cameron Diaz in this part. And I I like her too, but she's a modern girl. She's a modern girl with modern sensibilities, and she's not Kate Blanchett. She's not Kate Winslet. You don't believe her when she's not in present times. Well, all right. I agree she's not named Kate. But the the fact is I actually ended up going with it here. Yes, the red hair does not go with her. No, that was a bad <laughs> idea. But yeah. the accent was at least on par with Leo's. <laughs> no, no, it was not. I disagree. It sir. was. No. It was. They, they both couldn't really do their accents. <laughs> and Cameron Diaz is someone who, again, I like, but I don't think of her as an actress. I think of her as a performer. Movie star. Yeah. And here, I thought she did okay. I thought that she gave what was needed to that role. And at the end, you know, which we'll talk about later, but she leaves Leo because Leo's probably going to die in the fight and she wants to go leave her life of New York behind and start over in San Francisco. You know, by that point, I'd forgotten again it was Cameron Diaz, and to me, she was just Jenny. I thought, you know, perhaps she she wasn't going to win any awards for this, but I thought it was a very passable performance and not nearly the car wreck that I expected from the trailer. Mm, well, I wouldn't call it a car wreck, but I, I – and I don't blame her. I call it miscasting. I call it, wow, she's just off this hit movie called There's Something About Mary. We want to increase the commercial value of this movie by putting as many popular people as we can in it so let's put her in this part but she's just admittedly she uh, she was forced upon scorsese because uh it was going to be sarah polly but they wanted a more bankable star oh that's perfect that would have been perfect that would have really helped because first of all people don't really know who she is and she she can do period and cameron diaz just can't do period she stands out the whole time we're seeing well that's cameron diaz in uh red, badly dyed red hair yeah, I, I I agree with Stuart. She pulled me out every time I saw her. Uh, I couldn't get over the fact that it's Cameron Diaz. Leo, I, I could get into his character. Uh, the, yeah. Everyone else, even John C. Riley, 
I can mm-hmm. get into his character. He didn't pull me out of the film like he did with you, Arnie. But Cameron Diaz, man, it's in the love story again. I don't for that one development for Johnny to turn on his friend. I don't think it warranted an hour mm-hmm. of this back and forth, and you know Leo getting upset about getting Bill sloppy seconds. The only way that it really plays out is the fact that Henry Thomas gets mad because he wanted to bang Cameron Diaz, and he knew her first, and he saw her first, and so he's going to then just go and betray Leonardo DiCaprio to Bill and and tell Bill his secret identity. And it just—it seemed a little bit cliche for that. It's a very cliche <laughs> yeah. moment. This, the movie, the story, the framework, the storyline itself is just full of cliches. Because I don't think Scorsese was here to tell that story. He was here to talk about the detail work and and all the period detail. I I, I will say though, what happens to her at the end? Man, it got me. It, it almost got me to tear up. It was, it was pretty horrific. You know, so she didn't distract me so much that I was totally callous towards her performance or her character. But overall, yeah, I wasn't very impressed. I will agree that it it was during the dance scene because by this point in the movie, Leo is part of Bill the Butcher's gang, but we, the audience, still don't know his plan. And there's a scene where Henry Thomas takes him aside and says, what game are you playing? And, you know, he's asking my question, where Mm -hmm. where is this going? And then it goes to a dance. And this is the (laughs) moment where I hit the info button to see how far into the movie I am (laughs) and see I have another hour to go because I wanted the movie to get on with it because for a movie movie to start with a bang like it did and to build up the tension it had because i really felt there was a lot of tension there with amsterdam you know getting so close to daniel day lewis and everything i was really on the edge of my seat and that can't be maintained and instead it just all goes away yeah. and i i think the scene it goes away is when leo and cameron are dancing yeah i'm, I'm not gonna disargue that i i, I think I think that is true. I think that the romance, every time we're focusing on Cameron Diaz, whether it's her fault or whatever, we are totally taken out of the story that we were plugged into. And I wanted to get on with it. And the movie does sag in that middle part. They kill Henry Thomas. Who cares? He was, it was good to see that he's working, but I didn't really care about him. And all of this is just filler until we get to the reenactment of the opening battle. We learn that every year, Bill the Butcher restages it as a way of commemorating his victory in the, in the five points, how he came into power and restages it in a in a Chinese opera house, which if we were going to, you know, celebrate the founding fathers in the Revolutionary War, would we do that at Panda Express? I mean, like it just that was really like you're not gonna have a Thanksgiving meal at Panda Express. I'm like, I I understand that the Chinese were moving in there, but wow, what a weird what a weird environment to recreate the moment. And the one historical fallacy it has is that the Chinese are portrayed so much in this movie. I, according to, again, what I read on Wikipedia, there were 25 Chinese people in all of New York at this time. 25,000 or 25? No, 25. Two five. Uh, huh. Yeah, I read that on Wikipedia, too. I have a hard time believing there's only 25 Chinese, but... Yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem accurate <laughs> anywhere. I think that there are more Chinese than 25. Um, there's... No. No, but they were probably busy making the railroad at that time, so they weren't probably hanging out in New York too much. They're pro- it's probably true that Chinatown was just starting to be created. 
But General So's chicken wins over everybody. Oh, my God. But anyway, so we have this crazy-ass Chinese opera opening act, and then Bill is restaging the event, drinking out of a flaming glass, taunting Jenny with a, with a knife-throwing routine. Now, let me tell you, this scene, by this point, Bill the Butcher has found out who Leonardo really is, and... I honestly thought he was going to kill Jenny, and I would have so been down for that. Not that I <laughs> wanted her to die, but that would have added something to this movie. That would have given it even more weight. I it, Not only did Bill the Butcher kill Amsterdam's father, also killed his lover. You know, something like that. Yeah. I would have – I wanted to see her die just because I thought it would have added more dramatic weight. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of toys with it, and he scares the living hell out of her. And, you know, I really thought that she – she could die at this point. I, I never felt her character was safe. But it just turns out that he's taunting Leo. Leo does the attack and is foiled yes. by Bill the Butcher. And then Bill says that Amsterdam doesn't deserve the honor of being killed by Bill the Butcher. He's instead going to disfigure him. And I'm thinking, ooh, yes. Leo as the elephant man. Yeah, can we talk about that? Because I got to say, that is the point where I was re-engaged with the story. Up until that point, it was starting to feel a little cliched and I didn't really care. But when Leo's plan of attack was foiled, because the movie's been going on a while. I don't really know how long it's been going. This could be the end. And suddenly he's foiled and they throw a knife in him and then then Bill proceeds to essentially show how you carve up meat and tenderize it by doing a real number on Leo. I mean, we now know that Leo does not give a fuck about being pretty to the cameras because he's going to allow or his character to be totally eviscerated, or so I think. And I think that the moment was supposed to end with him taking an eye, right? Like, that was obviously where it was leading. Like, your father took my eye, I'm going to take your eye. And he even has a knife right there. And then when we see Leo again, both eyes. He doesn't even look bad. No, he doesn't. He just burns him on the side of the face with a hot knife. And even that that scar, yeah, you never see that. It, it yeah. He's got his greasy hair covering it, but you never really see anything there. Right, right. I really expected him to walk out of there, and yeah, I did. I never thought about the eye thing because Bill the Butcher plucked out his own eye. It wasn't valid. Right, right. It was well. It was it was taken from him though. I mean, he didn't just say, "I'm going to cut out my eye." I mean, it was damaged, and he took it out. But. Is that what happened? I thought he just took it out himself because he couldn't look at priest. They had the thing, and he he couldn't bring himself to look at priest, and he felt so bad about it. He said, I cut out the eye. I would have cut out both, but I can't afford to be blind. Oh. So I don't think the eye was damaged. I think that was Daniel Day-Lewis is a crazy motherfucker. <laughs> oh, interesting. You know what? I didn't, you know, I didn't pick up on that, but I think you might be right. So I never thought Leo was going to lose an eye, but I, I I was thinking back, you know, this is Scorsese. I was thinking back to Raging Bull and when, yeah. you know, uh, De Niro takes all those punches to the face and you see the nose breaking and everything. I was thinking Leo was going to come out of this looking pretty haggard and the, the prosthetic makeup for the rest of the film was going to be pretty intense. No, he just kind of looks like Leo. And this was got to be a sellout to the Weinsteins. This is the Weinsteins pulling their cards and saying, we are not going to promote a movie in which Leo is disfigured for half the movie i would have so been there though because it would have it would have sold it a little more it would and have- i th- i think everyone would have been on board i think leo wanted to change his image i think scorsese wanted to have this moment culminate in something it doesn't make any sense that he would let him live and just look like he got a sunburn yeah i, I i'm gonna say this movie one way to describe it is blue balls 
<laughs> I talked about that opening scene where you know you get this big buildup. They kick the door open. Nothing's there. You get this scene here where they go to uh, disfigure Leo, and it's a little burn mark that you can't see. <laughs> and then we get into this final battle, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Again, this huge buildup and nothing. And I don't know if that's the Weinsteins making a Scorsese pull back there, but uh, it frustrates me because every time this movie starts to get engaging, it just drops off all of a sudden. I agree because I thought that the uh, scene there in the Chinese restaurant was going to be the beginning of the end because after that, now Amsterdam's outed. I think it was a script mistake to allow Bill the Butcher to let Amsterdam just go so unfettered like that. Yes. I mean, the fact is, this is a guy with a blood oath against you, and he's proven himself to be your right-hand man. You know he's a dangerous guy, and you're just going to let him go off and not even keep an eye on him or imprison him. You're going to burn the side of his face and say, run on home to, you know, what do you, I didn't like that. But I expected this was the beginning of the end, and no, instead we're going to have a political election and go into a whole lot of politics shit. And it's like, man, y- you got me. Keep keep the pace going. The, the pacing of this movie was all off. And then we get this whole thing where that mercenary from the beginning of the film gets elected sheriff. <laughs> Which I liked. I like that whole storyline. Perhaps it is poorly paced and coming in at the wrong place. But I like the fact that they're trying to get an Irish, uh, an Irishman for sheriff. And by doing so, that's going to take away the power of Bill. I liked it because I liked that character of the sheriff. I liked the whole thing. I, and I li- it leads to Bill killing the sheriff, killing an elected official, which is, you know, the beginning of his own downfall. But... By the same token, it just robbed this film of its momentum. That would have been great if this was a TV series, you know, like Deadwood or something like that. Mm, mm-hmm. if, if this was an ongoing series like, uh, you know, any of the HBO series, Carnival, where you, you've got a showdown between the two characters, but it's going to play out over the course of seasons instead of over the course of hours, then I would be perfectly fine with this character paying off the way he does and having this side trip and this elongation of it. But in this movie, it just felt like we didn't want to see this at this point. We wanted to see Leo versus Daniel, and they had to stretch it out another 45 minutes before we got there. I agree with you. And, you know, I want, the one thing that I was wondering uh, was, you know, the editing. It's no secret that there was a big battle. The movie was delayed a year, and it was post-9-11, and there was lots of things and lots of cutting, and a lot of decision-making was taken out of Scorsese's hands. I really wonder if... In an earlier cut, Daniel Day-Lewis didn't know all along because he has a really great scene after he's had an assassination attempt on him. And Leo has ironically stopped the assassin from doing it mostly because – well, we think because he wants to be the one to put Bill down, but maybe because he's being seduced as well. And Bill tells him that – you know, he loved Priest and that he was the most honorable man he ever killed. And it's really kind of telling Leo in a way, I thought – Hey, I know who you are, and th- things change, and yeah, it was shitty what happened to your dad, and I know you're mad at me, but stick by me, that, and, and we can be friends. I thought that the movie would play better if it went that way, and you cut out the whole Henry Thomas betrays you because of Jenny. You cut out Jenny. You cut that all out, and it's really about these two guys. I think it would have been much more interesting. And the movie should have been about these two guys. One of the things I put in my notes is you have this very Batman and Joker relationship. 
between yes. Bill the Butcher and uh, Leo's character. I mean, Bill the Butcher is actually a very honorable man. He, he talks about, you know, when you go to war, you, you come up with the rules. Uh, and we get a see, scene of that later on. But, you know, you don't just kill a man in the dark. You, you, you kill him on the battlefield. He, he, there's actually a, a, a skewed sense of honor to mm-hmm. him. And, and when you're talking about having this celebration of America in a Chinese theater, I, I, I think it goes to this weird complexity to Bill where, yeah, he is kind of this – you know, he's got that uh, uh, tying the maid into the train tra- tracks, twisty mustache, you know, <laughs> look. But yes. he, he's also got this this humane side to him. And one of the things about Jenny's background that I liked is that you find out he, he's actually kind of a caring father. I don't know if I believe her when she says that he never did anything to her until she asked for it. But it, it brings kind of this tender side to Bill. Mm-hmm. And, and you, so you get this relationship between Leo and, and Daniel Day-Lewis where they kind of need each other. As much as they hate each other and, and they have this revenge going between each other, they also need each other. And, and they feed off each other. And you kind of get the picture that they could be very powerful if they combined. Yes. Yes. I agree. And I, I think that I like the idea that at first he attacks him on the political front and tries to weaken him with the gangs. You're right, Arnie. When you said TV series in Deadwood, that really has clicked with me. I think I loved Deadwood and I love those HBO shows. And I think you're right. If we had had more time to soak in this world and see all these gangs and see all of the power plays, because that's what those shows are always about. Sopranos and, and Deadwood, they're all about power plays. That's the story they want to tell here. The power play going on in the Five Points slum and how we have this massive badass guy in the top hat who, for personal reasons, Leo doesn't like, but whose honor, whose code among thieves is admirable and who he's trying to model himself after. I think that's the story they would have, should have, and almost told. And there's a lot of other junk here for a lot of other different reasons. What's the fourth part? You mentioned there's four parts to the movie. Yeah, the fourth part is the end battle where all of a sudden the New York riots occur. The draft (laughs) is pissing off the New Yorkers who are killing the black people, which is something I – you know, they don't teach us this in the history books. They really don't because you think it's north versus south. So obviously all the northerners are enlightened and, you know, instantly racial equality and all of that. And the southerners have their whips out and chain up the black people. And that's the history books I read as a kid. And so to see – that in New York, not only are they racist, but they're pissed off that they have to go fight the Southerners. Right, exactly. It explains the racism. It explains that the reason why they hate black people so much is because they have to die. They're, not, they're seen as less. They're seen as lesser than, than the slaves. They have to die so that the black people can be free. And that's the racial tension that's there in that neighborhood. It would have been cool to see a little bit more of that. They do have a token black character who joins the dead rabbits. I'm not sure why Leo is so progressive that he would be like, (laughs) you know what? It's time to change the times. We're going to get with a black dead rabbit. I mean, I, I know as modern audiences, we always like to see that blend. But, you know, that's a fantasy. I don't think that Leo was thinking, yeah, we really need to incorporate incorporate blacks into our all Irish gangs. There's that just doesn't make any sense. Well, I guess if the Irish could go native, then the blacks could go Irish. Yeah, yeah, and there you're right. There is all sorts of ironies. This movie is littered with ironies, and I guess that's one of them. But 
I love the end battle because you think it's going to be a replay of the beginning because you've got all the dead rabbits ganging together and you've got the natives coming together. And it's just like the beginning where these people come out of every nook and cranny in the scenery like rats. Mm-hmm. And it's just wonderful. Both times they do it, it's wonderful where these people come out of just nowhere and become this huge crowd. And I don't know that you'd ever see this in a movie again today because they'd CGI the people. You know, George Lucas visited the set of this movie and turned to Scorsese and said, you know, we can do all of this with CGI now. (laughs) (laughs) So you see all these real people coming out of everywhere. And it's just such a great scene. You think, all right, I love that opening battle. Here it is again. But, of course, in any movie, you can't do the same thing twice. You can't end with what you begin with and so to ratchet it up a notch now they're undergoing cannon fire because the military is bombing new york because of these riots that are going on at the same time and so it really ratchets it up a notch because now there's the big battle is interrupted by cannon fire and i was so down for it at that moment and then there's an elephant going through the streets which you know you gotta laugh anytime an elephant is going down a street this is why youtube is popular and it, it was just such a good opening to what i felt was an anticlimactic ending Oh, really? I love the ending and I hate it. You know, it's funny. <laughs> and that and that elephant walking by, it's, it's my favorite moment in the whole movie. I love that scene. Essentially, Leo has gathered the troops and they're heading there and they're on the scene and they're ready. And we think Bill's going to come out any second. And nope, it's uh, the ringling circus is burning down the street and an elephant is running by and like circus clowns are trying to get it back. <laughs> and like Leo does this double take that is just hilarious. He's like, what the heck? Uh, it's just it's my favorite moment in the whole movie. It's just priceless. But you know what doesn't make sense about this battle is that the draft riots really have nothing to do with the battle that they're trying to set up, which is between Bill and Leo. And I suppose in a certain way, native versus immigrant. I mean, it's I guess that's the tie is that, you know, the immigrants were tired of being the cannon fodder for the civil war and so they were ha- not having any more and they became a riot, but I don't think that that really well mirrors the gang warfare. And and to see Bill killed by miscellaneous cannon fire instead of by Leo. I know that, that 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 is disappointing because there's this scene in the beginning where Liam Neeson is shaving with a straight razor and hands his son the blade and says, never clean the blood off the blade. And then you see that the mercenary, has, when he was supposedly robbing Liam was actually taking that razor to give to Liam's son and then there's the passing on of the blade and DiCaprio is carrying the razor to battle did I am I the only one who thought that he was going to slit Daniel Day-Lewis's throat with the razor he had to that was a given that was like yeah and then we'll get to the final the throat slit to see him kill that way I, the only thing I liked about it was that it, it uh, gives Daniel Day-Lewis another great line and uh, he sneers and says well at least I get to die an American you know that his own father died in war he was born in this country he didn't want to be killed by immigrants he has a long dialogue about how he thought the man that nearly assassinated him was beneath him and not like priest and that he wanted to die in a way that was patriotic and that you know that it was really patriotic that he got to be killed by uh, crossfire essentially between uh, Union soldiers and Irish people that didn't want to go fight in the war anymore. I, I will say that that was the real William Poole's last line before he died. 
Oh, was it really? Yeah. I well, I didn't even know that was a real character. So that's really that's great. Although the real William Poole was not known to have killed anyone, so you know Bill the Butcher is fictionalized. That's a letdown. But yeah, mm. yeah, he wasn't a murderous bastard. He was just a bastard, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I got, this final scene for me, this is that third set of blue balls. It's a good thing I got three balls because I, I was let down three <laughs> times in this movie. Uh, you get this huge buildup. I've been waiting like two and a half hours for this. And the, the, the gangs line up on each side and this cannon fire comes. And it's not like I thought, OK, so the gangs are going to be fighting and there's going to be cannons all around them. Cool. They're, they're up in the ante from the, the beginning battle. No, everyone dies or runs away. And you get this fight in this cloud of smoke where after, again, two and a half hours of Bill the Butcher talking about how he's an honorable man and how you fight on the battlefield face to face, he's running around like a ninja in the smoke, like slicing uh, Leo's tendons as he runs by one at a time. Yeah, it was it was out of a kung fu movie, I got to admit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a total letdown. But I you mean, didn't yeah. love that? I kind of loved it. I'm like, why am I watching a Civil War movie and a Kung Fu movie at the same time? This this movie is the mashup to end all mashups. I'm like, I have never seen a movie like this before or since. And I mean that. I have, If you want to see, just have an experience of never having seen a genre like this. There's, there's, they never made another one. I don't think they ever would. I don't think they could. I'm not saying the movie's not cliched. There's a lot of cliches. But man, this is a Western a gang movie, a romance, a drama, a political satire, and yes, by the end of it, a kung fu, a ninja, <laughs> smoke-laden battle. I mean, just awesome. Just awesome. Every I, I've watched this three or four times now. I, I, I'm enthralled by Lewis's performance in here, and that's why I, I, whenever this is on TV, I watch it. And just still, every time that final fight, it just it, it blows it for me. I, I, I understand what you're saying, Stuart. I love mashups. I, I just don't think it goes far enough mashing up the genres here. It, it just seems more awkward than something deliberate. And I just think that for the point of drama, I, I get that, you know, I understand the storytelling of telling a story about people while big things happen around them. You know, there, there there's countless ones of those. And I understand the irony of having Daniel Day-Lewis killed by miscellaneous shrapnel. But it wasn't dramatically mm. fulfilling to me after so yes. much, after all that Daniel Day-Lewis had done to Leonardo DiCaprio, personally killing his father, supposedly disfiguring him in such a minor way. You know, you, you want for drama that showdown, you know? Mm-hmm. And we are kind of robbed of it. Yeah, sure, Leo does stab him after the fact, whoop-de-doo, but, you know, the the smoke fight didn't give me what I want. What I wanted is what Jacob said. I wanted them to have the fight at the beginning with cannons as an extra obstacle, you know? In, in yes, the middle yes. of it all, there's buildings crumbling in addition to all of the fighting going on. You could have had Hellcat... Betty or whatever her name was, like riding the elephant into war. I mean, awesome. put it over the top. I, mean, <laughs> I agree. Something. Don't give me this smoke laden kind of fight. Yeah, she was back, and they didn't do her yeah, scene. She must have gotten cut. She, yeah. got, she must have gotten her scene got cut. I'm telling you that there's a much longer cut, and some of this stuff exists. I would love to have seen Hellcat Mary come back on an elephant. That would have just <laughs> made my year. But uh, you're right. I was totally with the battle, even though I didn't understand why it was being paralleled with the draft riots. But it was awesome. It was exciting. And then when Daniel Day Lewis goes down the way that he does, I'm like, well, I've been cheated. 
Yeah, it's like they killed him because he's the bad guy and he has to die. And they get a very um, sentimental ending where, okay, now candles are on all the dead bodies and we uh, flash forward to modern day New York. And somehow we're expected to think that what Bill did helped create the Twin Towers. Huh? Is that what we're supposed to think? I didn't know what the (laughs) hell we were supposed to think. But honestly, you know, I I didn't know much about the making of this movie. I knew this movie came out in 2002 and late 2002. I kind of thought the whole movie and about immigration and persecution of the immigrants. I thought the whole movie might have been about 9-11 and Al-Qaeda and whatnot. I didn't realize this movie was made before that. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it had been delayed because of 9-11. And you see the evolution of new york which is a great great scene you know where you see the new york of that time and it goes to the twin towers but am i the only one who expected one more fade to take the twin towers out (laughs) well we are so much further away from 9-11 than than we were at that time at that time there was a lot of too soon and do we even have this shot at all and do we erase the memory i mean the twin towers were cut out of uh uh, what was the movie Spider spider man had the trailer and they digitally removed the buildings there you I, go. I don't yeah. understand that. When when you have a loved one die, do you destroy all their pictures? You I, don't, I don't understand don't. this mentality of the American public. Where you, you can't look at it. I understand your point, Jacob, and I agree. But by the same token, if I'm having a surprise party to somebody, I don't make a cardboard standee of their recently dead wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that bad move there. Bad move. Um, it, it was fresh, and that's what we should be remembering. This movie is coming out, and it was still raw. What was going on in New York? And it was so much about you know immigrants coming to this country and vigilante justice and New York and all that. I mean, there's just so much that crosses over into how we felt about the 9-11 attacks. Patriotism. You know, the movie is really kind of about Bill's whole code is based on patriotism. And that's that's a battle we're still fighting right now. So I think it was fresh. And they just, yeah, they hold back. And I don't know that, I just don't know what we're, you're right. I don't know what the takeaway is listening to that terrible U2 song and, <laughs> and watching the Twin Towers. I'm just not sure that the movie I just watched has anything to do with bringing in the Twin Towers and our feelings about terrorism was scorsese trying to tell a story about new york this is you know what new york's built on because i i I know like woody allen there's this whole genre of filmmakers that are all about new york and have this new york attitude i'm from la grew up in la i don't get that new york attitude my best friend moved to new york he didn't get that new york attitude he thought new york was just a a cultural uh bankrupt uh, void when he lived there, wait. So someone, from, get that. someone, someone from LA said that about New York. Yeah, Ooh, he, he, he said he said people drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee and think that's good <laughs> coffee. I mean, maybe that's a very LA thing to say to judge someone by the coffee they drink. Yes, but, uh, it is. It is. I love this. Make a sequel to this movie and make those the gangs, the New York and the LA. I would enjoy yeah. that. Yeah. Wow, that's but hilarious. I, so maybe I, I'm missing something because I, I don't come from that New York culture, but. I, I'm trying to figure out what is this saying about New York? Because I, I, I know, you know, just from secondhand things I read, uh, a lot of native New Yorkers are upset with what Giuliani did because he sterilized it so much, cleaned it up, uh, you know, Disney-fied Times Square. In, in one of those awful voiceovers, Leo says, you know, 
uh, will be forgotten. And yeah. Why did you just spend two and a half hours trying to remind me if you're going to be forgotten? Is something you did important to building up New York? I, I just don't get the connection between this movie and modern New York. And I want to I want to echo your statement, Jacob, is when I walked away from this movie, I, I, I said, OK, I was entertained. But what is it trying to say? Because it feels like it's a message movie, but I'm lost as to what the message is. I will say this much. This is my theory on it. Just being very familiar with Scorsese and what he was doing. It was the founding of his New York. It was the founding of the neighborhoods he grew up in, the way the politics ran, the way the people and the crime and the thugs and all of that he knew. That was his New York. The, the, the presence of the Irish, the tension between the Irish and the black, all of that. But when you put a shot of the Twin Towers a year after they fell, no one's thinking about what this means personally for Scorsese. They're thinking you're trying to say something about what happened in 9-11. And if you look at the movie like that, it does not work at all. Yeah, it was just kind of confusing. And I understand that they're saying, you know, that became today. What I thought that last shot was saying, honestly, is that – for the past three hours, we've spent our time seeing this feud between these two guys. And looking back, it doesn't really matter. Everybody's forgotten. I thought it was kind of downplaying <laughs> it's the importance of anything. It's like time yeah. moves on. This was a story. <laughs> and who cares now? That I really thought that was like a big shrug, like a meh. That is – I think in some ways uh, there is another line or two in there saying about how the differences between them don't matter now. And there is that sensibility of as death you know, makes everyone equals in the end and that uh, that's kind of true. But it, it does trivialize all of the stuff we've seen before. But you know what? I'm just going to come out and say it. This is not Scorsese's best movie. I don't feel it's a masterpiece. He didn't totally teach me something new about New York or say anything, but I had a lot of fun watching him get into the muck, making a real tense, exciting gang movie again after so many limp, not very good Oscar baiting movies. I, it was, it was just fun to have a B movie from Scorsese. That was satisfying. I, I hear everything that you guys are saying about the blue balls and how it doesn't totally fulfill on its promises and agree with you. But even as a failure on all of those points, I still had a lot of fun here. I just I can't believe this movie was made pre 9-11 and especially pre Iraq because there's the whole conversation time and time again about the draft and how you can get out of the draft if you have $300 but who has $300 but the rich people and all I could think of was like Fahrenheit 911 where Michael Moore is asking the senators if their sons could go serve in Iraq and the senators are saying no I, I mean it it's obviously the haze of today's events filtering in on this movie made before then but I mean am I the only one who got kind of a Bush America vibe out of this movie? Arnie, I've grown up in Los Angeles, so for me, this was all about Mexican immigrants because it is a story (laughs) on the news every day, and the arguments you hear anti-immigration people saying it's exactly the stuff that Bill the Butcher say. I remember watching this and saying to my dad, I'm like, this is why like listening to talk radio today. I could turn it on and hear these same arguments. So for me, coming from L.A., it was all about Mexican immigration. I think there's something just universal about that. You know, Boss Tweed is a character in this movie, and he is sort of a a behind-the-scenes political force at Tammany Hall. He kind of gets everything uh, – he rigs elections, essentially, is what he does. And he has a great line that I I think kind of typifies what you're saying, Arnie. He says, I always hire one half of the poor to kill the other half. And I think that's just something we could probably find represented in any era of history, and it's – 
it's true of, uh, of, of today as it is uh, back in the 1840s. So, Arnie, Jacob, do you recommend Gangs of New York? I do recommend Gangs of New York. I did bring up its flaws because it has some – and it's kind of a lukewarm recommendation. This isn't a movie that I will watch again and again the way Jacob does. But it's a movie I enjoyed watching. It, it was something that engrossed me for the three hours or for most of the three hours. It drags along the way and – it's funny because it's a film of dichotomies. It's a film that starts off so strong and so has so much momentum, and then it drags. And it's a film that has such great performances by Daniel Day-Lewis and some others, and then there's a couple of not-so-great performances. And so for every great in it, there's a meh in it. And it kind of ends on a weak note. It, it's not the strongest film in the world, but... I definitely recommend everybody see this movie once. It reminded me a lot of Goodfellas in a different time period. And I, I like Goodfellas. I like gang movies and mob movies in general. And I had a much better time with this film than I expected to. For all of my complaints, I recommend Gangs in New York to anybody who enjoys good cinema. I'm also going to recommend this movie. Do you need to watch it every time it's on TV like I do? Eh, maybe not. If it's to your liking, then go for it. But it's got its flaws. We talked about, you know, it's, it's got its story, and then it's got all this historical stuff going on, and it's so uneven. You know, it, it's like thinking on Star Wars. Arnie brought up Lucas uh, commenting to Scorsese about how you can do all the CGI stuff. The, the original trilogy with Star Wars, you have this huge uh, galactic empire, but all those politics are in the background, and then you have the prequels. And all that – those politics come to the foreground, and it just throws the movie off. And, and this movie has that same problem. As soon as those politics come to the screen, instead of being background, it's whisperings going on, it, it hurts the film. It, it just throws it off balance between this personal story between Leo and Daniel Day-Lewis and their rivalry. But just cinematically, I love some of the huge sets in this film. It's something you just don't see these days. With the onset of CGI. So there's a lot of cinematic elements that I think this it's worth seeing this film for. The huge battles where everyone is 100% real human. The huge sets. The costumes. Uh, and, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis. That's why I come back to this film time and time again. He's so he, he's just bigger than life in this film. Uh, it's hard for me not to love him in this film. It's just Bill the Butcher is such a great character. I, I think one of the great complex villains in, in cinematic history. And so you got to watch this movie at least once. I do recommend it. And I'm going to echo all of what you said. I'm, I'm relieved. Uh, I thought I would be the only one to recommend it because we do tend to dwell on, on flaws a lot here on Now Playing. And, I, and I'm not saying they're not there. I agree with most of whatever anyone has said about the movie. Um, but it does not change the fact that it is enormously entertaining as a, a piece of dark comedy and as a piece of action grit and you're right just a performance that you will just take away uh, it's not likely that anyone that sees this movie will forget bill the butcher they end it with oh he will be forgotten they won't forget daniel day lewis he is awesome in this movie i don't think he ever had a, a better part and i don't think i've ever liked him more in any other movie so thank you for joining me uh, arnie jacob we're going to continue this series as it were scorsese has just completed his dream project, the movie he was building all his life to make, and he's going to repay the favor to Leo by giving and making him Leo's dream project that he wanted to make, The Aviator, the next movie in our series. We're going to be releasing that next week. And I would like to end this 
podcast by telling Stuart, you're right, you win the bet. Hellcat Maggie, not Mary, Maggie is a real person from the 1840s. She was a member of the Dead Rabbits, and she was a noted female fighter who reportedly had her teeth filed into points and wore long, claw-like brass fingernails. Freddy Krueger totally ripped her off. Absolutely. (laughs) So kudos to you. She was a real person. I can't believe it, but she was a real person. Nice. I like it. I'm going to take your eye for that. (laughs) I'm going to put in a smiley face one. (laughs) All right. I I would have figured it would have been Yoda, but anyway. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. true american thank you for joining us for now playing spartan scorsese leonardo dicaprio retrospective series be sure to visit us at nowplayingpodcast.com every friday from now until the release of shutter island february 19th for a new installment in this series the movies discussed in this series are the properties of their respective trademark holders and no infringement is intended Now Playing is not affiliated with Miramax Films, Intermedia Films, Initial Entertainment Group, Warner Brothers, or any other creative entity involved in these films. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright and trademark 2010, all rights reserved. The way of the future, the way of the future, the way of the future. Way of the future. <clears throat> the way of the future. This is your host. Is that is that my role here? I there's no Brock. I'm I'm your host. I'm I'm what you got. So Arnie, Jacob, do you recommend Gangs of New York? Wow, I get to go first. I never get to go first. This is exciting because <laughs> I always have to clean up, and <laughs> I always feel bad for the person who goes last because then they can't say what's been said. <laughs>